Greetings, this is The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. I'm Dean Karpowitz. I'm Trey Bourne. I'm Molly Grassel. And I'm Sarah Willis. Today on the show, the anti-hero. And rather than start with a question today, I figured maybe we would start with sort of a definition and a little bit of background, and then we can all give our thoughts, maybe some of our favorites and stuff like that. Uh, Although we might be able to find examples of the anti-hero all the way back to sort of ancient Greek literature, you know, tragedies and uh, epics and things, it was first sort of used in 1714. But in that usage, it was an ant, the person opposed to the hero. So it basically meant villain. And then it wasn't until the mid 19th century uh, with the rise of American realism that it started to become understood as it is today. Someone who's, who is the main character, but lacks the qualities. Who would that be? Dan? Would that have been, I was thinking about that Dracula, maybe in the earth. I mean, like the first kind of hero like that. That's the only one I could really think of. That would be more romantic, but in the, in the, uh, in the age of realism, Huck Finn is a really good example of Mm. the anti-hero. Sure. You know, He's the main character. He ultimately makes the right choice in the end, but he goes about it in ways that are non-heroic. He's sort of a he's sort of a trickster character. He's a prankster character. He lives outside of the norms, right, of society. the The widow Douglas would be, you know, the the approved version of the way uh, a hero should act, or more aptly, Tom Sawyer. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Tom Sawyer would probably be the classic hero, right? Yeah, he sort of represents the romantic hero in that book. Um, he because he says things like, "We had to do this because that's the way it's done in the books. That's the way the heroes in the books do it." And and that makes not that doesn't make much sense to Huck Finn at all. But it the reason I think that it uh, becomes so popular and the, it sort of morphs bec- in that era uh, is because during the re- the age of realism, the hero changes. Uh, we, we don't look at these sort of romanticized traditional heroes and the common person becomes the center of literature. Newspapers make a, a rise as a form of not just transmission of information, but as sort of an art form. Photography becomes an art form. More people are reading. More people are moving to cities. So we're centering our literature on the, the, the common person more than before. And we see the rise of a lot of these kinds of heroes that aren't that that lack the sort of traditional qualities. I think it's it morphs even further in the modern period, where we have uh, relativism is central, and that's across disciplines. So if you think about uh, the modern period before World War One, even Albert Einstein's theory of relativity is talking about physics and the way time and space are relative. Well, through war, World War I and after, there's a sense of moral relativism that's pervasive throughout the other the humanities, let's just say. And so we have characters like Nick Adams, Hemingway's yeah. character, who's a, who's a total anti-hero. And almost all of those, uh, Stephen Dedalus, almost all of those high modern uh, writers 
are dealing with characters that are morally adrift or amoral or apathetic or nihilistic. Even Faulkner's characters in many ways. Quentin Compson is not. I was going to say Quentin Compson was a total anti-hero. Uh, you know, it started in The Sound and the Fury and then in Absalom, Absalom. I mean, he was the opposite of a hero. He's yeah. almost a void at times. Yeah. Yeah. And so that that becomes thematically something that's embodied in modernism. So, so modernism in, in a lot of ways laments the human condition where postmodernism, where I think we are fascinated with our antiheroes today, uh, sort of celebrates that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> it's, it's having fun right along the way where, where modernism, it's like you need a hug after you read, read any work of high True. modernism. Right. Read the sound in the fury. Read as I lay dying. Read in our time. You know. Read the for whom the bell tolls. Any of those books, and you you need Prozac. Right. You need a therapist <laughs> afterwards. And that's really interesting because when you think of Hemingway, you always think of the manly character yeah. and the. But really, you know, the main character in the Sun Also Rises was impotent. You know, yeah. and you would think that that a Hemingway character would be you know this you know the bullfighter or whatever, but it was actually this person that's the anti, what, yep. what you would consider a Hemingway hero, hero, he was the anti. Hemingway is sort of a roller coaster in academia. He might be popular and then be, that sort of toxic masculinity that's associated with Hemingway gets him less kind of um, time in the classroom. Um, but I read his work as his male characters are tortured and they, it doesn't work out well for them in the end. It didn't work out well for Hemingway in the end. You know, he stood outside his uh, kitchen door and put a shotgun in his mouth and committed suicide. That's how he died. But Nick Adams, I mean, I point out to my characters, he, there's, a, there's a short story called The End of Something where Nick Adams is breaking up with his girlfriend, Marjorie, and they have this nice picnic set up by the shore of Horton's Bay, and they're sitting there. Uh, she has the picnic basket. And the sun is going down and he doesn't talk about the wonderful sort of twilight or the sun. He talks about the waves and the way the firelight glints off the fishing rods. Right. I mean, he, he completely drains all the sort of romance um, <laughs> out of his, out of his stories. And the next, the very next story, Nick Adams is sort of like, man, I really screwed up in his own mind. He's thinking I really screwed up by breaking up with, with Marjorie and you know, for the rest of the book, you just watch these characters make those kinds of, of mistakes. That's interesting. Cause whenever I think about the anti-hero, I think today when you hear about that, you think of like a Walter White and Breaking yeah. Bad, you know, like a, just a piece of shit. And, but it's really, <laughs> you know, more, it's like what you would consider a hero, the, just the complete opposite of that. And it doesn't mean they're a villain. It just means, you know, they just have no heroic qualities at all. Yeah. Well, that is interesting to bring up because in thinking about anti-heroes, I really had to consider where the line is drawn between yeah. who is a hero, who is an anti-hero, who is a sympathetic villain. Like I, I was just looking up some lists of just to give me some ideas. And like one person put Tony Stark as an anti-hero and I, I wouldn't have thought he was an anti-hero, but I guess he is. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the Marvel universe, the hero, the sanctioned uh righteous uh superhero is Captain America. Right. Right. And who's he always getting into arguments with? 
Iron Tony Man. Stark, yeah. Iron Man, you know. That's an interesting explanation then, because then if you get into like the MCU's treatment of Civil War, yep. you have those roles reversed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just it's interesting. Yeah, he grows a he grows he grows a beard. <laughs> Which makes him automatically the anti-hero. Really. Uh, it's not as cut and dry a category, I guess, as I was thinking in my head. I think of- we have fun with it today in ways that we didn't in the sort of realistic, well, I guess Huck Finn's a fun character to read about, mm-hmm. but in the, maybe in the modern period, you know, remember civil war. It was like, which team are you on? Yeah. You know, that was the big question. Are you team Iron Man or are you team Captain America? I watched, I rewatched the infinity war and in game uh, with a friend who had never seen it before. And I was kind of explaining all the characters and, you know, and I was really amazed like Thanos uh, to me, was very sympathetic. And yeah. I don't remember feeling that way when I watched it the first time. I mean, he yeah. had a legitimate reason why he wanted yeah. to and wanted to save the universe. You know, I mean, it's genocide. Yes, I understand. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Motivations, understandable. Methodology, problematic. <laughs> yeah, right. I was actually telling a friend of mine that I was doing this and he said, well, you're going to be talking about Darth Vader, I guess, with Star- in Star Wars. And, right. I, and I actually, mm-hmm. I thought Han Solo was the first yeah. one I thought of anti-hero. That was the first person I thought of. Yeah, I would say Han Solo is more an anti-hero. Darth Vader is a sympathetic villain. And I was going to say, and then Lucas tried to make him an anti-hero uh, with the prequels, and it yeah, didn't really work, I don't think. We watch his descent. We know his backstory, and that's where his the anti-hero elements come in but he is definitely the villain right of the the first three released movies four five and six and then kind of turns dean he hates sand can't you get that through your head he hates sand god it's rough and it gets everywhere (laughs) so i'm gonna kill a bunch of babies i'm so sad for all of the people involved in that movie (laughs) i know like thinking about it makes me very upset for them. It's a, it's a modern travesty. Yes, yes, it is. It's like that friend who you're embarrassed for. Yeah, yeah. Right? You, you're in that. You're, you watch that movie. And you're like, I'm really. I, I'm, yeah. I'm, I feel bad for these people. <laughs> like you know, like watching the final seasons of Game of Thrones. Oh God, do you did you? This is very off topic, but did did you see the video of the table read for the last yeah. season and how upset they all are? Oh, it's oh, it's it's hard to watch. They they're like they seem legitimately like some of them are close to tears. I don't know. I think Kit Harrington was kind of acting. You think so? I don't. Because the I camera's do. on. His face just looks like that. <laughs> his face does look like that. I saw pictures of him with his baby. He still looked like that. But um... <laughs> Khaleesi was legitimately angry. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So. So who are what are some of our most our our favorite contemporary antiheroes? Does that count? Can you put Daenerys in? Is she an antihero? Oh, that's a good question. Mm. She's definitely the hero of her own story. But um, she it's the Targaryen traits, you know, the uh the violence, the blood, uh the vengeance that she gets for. Uh it's not necessarily as I think angry or as I, I don't want to say evil because that doesn't feel like the right word, but I think she's, you know, she's, she's got a conquest in her own way. And just because it's not as like violent and 
manipulative as some of the other characters of the show, I don't know that that makes it any more righteous, you know? I think they tried. And I think that's why everyone got pissed off because for the first, what was it? Seven seasons total first, first six seasons. She is the totally standard traditional hero. She's not going to have any slavery in her, you know, towns, villages, cities. She stands up for the right uh, side every single time in the face of her heredity and all the other stuff, the madness in her family. And then suddenly we're supposed to buy. But that's what stops her. That's what sinks her. And that's what like is when she starts trying to do the right thing. And that's when she gets stalled uh, with carrying out her mission. It wasn't believable though. It wasn't. No, No. it wasn't. It was like she had a, it was like she had a midlife madness. Yeah. A midlife crisis, but she had a dragon. There needed to be like three seasons of descent between point A and point B. And they just rushed it. But um, I was thinking Game of Thrones, if you really wanted to uh, maybe a more traditional anti-hero, uh, Arya Stark. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure. I think out of Game of Thrones, you would you would maybe pick uh, Tyrion, right? Oh, yeah. That's what I was thinking. Kind of anti-hero. Or Jamie. You know, I was thinking Jamie. Yeah, Lannister. Jamie too. Yeah. Jamie has more struggles. I think Tyrion, through most of it, you know, the, his front is this lecherous guy but he's he's always thoughtful and ends up going the circuitous route to get to the right the right choice yeah i'd agree with that yeah. you know he does it through the brothel and you know the wine flask yeah and when he's put in the position of being a good leader in that world he's like really really good because he's so corrupt and he knows how the world works and he knows how to make things go He's the he's the Jessica Jones of Game of Thrones. <laughs> uh, another good one I saw online is um, Captain Jack Sparrow. It's a good anti-hero. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he is. He's a very good anti-hero. I've talked to a bunch about The Wire, but I mean, there's a character on there called Omar. If you've watched it, yep. um, who is in my mind, he is the classic anti-hero because. The whole world that they've set up, he is the total opposite of everything going on, uh, except that he says he has a code and he lives by his code. And so that way, I guess maybe he's a classic hero, but he's 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 a drug. Not only is it he kills drug dealers and he in that very masculine culture, he's homosexual. Yeah. And so uh, he just. I don't know. I thought he, he was an excellent character in that show. I picked some literary ones. I picked Tyler Durden. Mm. Yeah. Right. Right club. Totally. Um, the kid, if anyone's read uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy and almost any Cormac McCarthy character you might say is a, in some way an anti-hero. Billy Pilgrim from uh, Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, uh, Vonnegut's character. Yeah, yeah. I would say that he's probably a good example. If you want to talk about Thomas Pynchon, Tyrone Slothrop, the main character of <laughs> That's a hell of a name. Yeah, he has some he has some great names like Dr. Hilarious is a <laughs> psychiatrist in one of his books. It's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh and then I thought of like Case uh from Neuromancer where where the where the name for Straylight magazine comes from from Neuromancer. Case is carried for most of the novel by Molly Millions, who's the who's the muscle, 
the razor girl who's the muscle of the organization and cases not in, in no way the sort of traditional hero i don't know why is why do you guys think it's so popular today you know uh, it seems like more than ever you could name you could go across genres I, i'm you could uh, television every character of the walking dead you know all oh, of our yeah. favorite shows breaking bad right or even comedies like the office i mean the office dexter yeah right hannibal so i don't know what is i think it? you think it's it just seems like for a while there everyone was so ironic i mean irony was just so i mean prevalent i think it's a it's a darth vader kind of thing like Hannibal himself is already established as a villain. As we know, Darth Vader is a villain. The show is just going into the backstory. Yeah, that's true with that one. But I mean, The Walking Dead was the most popular show on television ever. I wonder if it has something to do with viewing the system as broken and that a traditional hero plays by the rules of the system and an anti-hero bucks the system entirely and turns all the rules on its on their head to succeed. Is it that we've become incredibly pessimistic? I think so. I think we've been pessimistic for a while, but I think I think a lot of I mean, The Walking Dead was the most popular show on television like 5 or 10 years ago or you know, it's not been on for that long, but I I think it's been a time and I think that there definitely was a surge in popularity of that, but I think that that might be a little bit on its way out. Yeah, it's it's almost it's almost become a trope. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was thinking that like the I remember the first when Seinfeld got really really popular. I remember there was all these articles and on the birth of irony or people you don't like and yeah you know, these main characters you don't like and the show about nothing and then it just seemed like we everything went in that direction and I was thinking about this uh, because we were talking about this in our uh, death of the author series a, a while ago. I mean. Nowadays, you can't really say anything, especially an email, sarcastically or ironically, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it can be taken out of context and used mm-hmm. again, you know. And, yeah. and I was yeah. thinking about that. I was like, you know, my sense of humor that I kind of grew up with and love, irony, sarcasm, just doesn't work that much anymore because no one wants to be I ironic. Think maybe a limitation of uh, textual reading yeah. just... Uh, in general, like it's it's difficult to establish. There are so many different cues that we as people use, like verbal, tonal, uh, visual, that you don't really get to see in written messages. And so I think that that may have part of the that may be part of that. Well, what about in literature? I mean, there's a lot of. Yeah. I, I, well, sometimes that goes right over people's heads. I mean, my my favorite. Maybe we're just dumber. Is, uh, I don't I don't think so. <laughs> I, I think some people have always been dumb and some people have always been snarky and that uh, transcends across literary themes. Look at Jonathan Swift's, uh, God, what is it? The one about eating babies. Oh, it's a modest proposal. Yeah, yeah, a modest proposal. Um, and there were some people that were like, oh my God, you're not actually suggesting that. And he's like, no, it was satire, guys. I mean, do, but in some ways, do we get, do you think we we enjoy living vicariously through you know, through Absolutely. through these characters, like Deadpool is gets to say the kinds of things that we aren't I, allowed to. I feel like a, an antihero's victory is sometimes more delicious because of the way they achieve their victory. Like V for Vendetta. I don't know. It's just um, I think it depends a lot on the intent. It does. Yeah. Like you don't want to see somebody breaking the rules for the sake of breaking the rules. I think the time of that 
particular uh, protagonist has passed. You want to see people breaking the system for good. Yes, I agree. I feel like uh, this is this might be a little, I don't know, out there, but I feel like in in the modern period, things were really complicated and there were things that didn't match up with other things and there were binaries and we realized that sort of good and evil could reside in the same character, right? Kurtz, for example. Um, But there was a meaning there. And I think, I think there's been a shift that still is a sort of around today. And we might be getting some backlash to that where we, we've come to own the meaninglessness of things. Mm. It's become a part of our identity. You know, we like to live in and own this now in the in the space between things. You know, we can see it with gender, the, the non non-binaryness of it. We own that. If we try to in some ways ascribe meaning, you know, we reject it. And I think the anti-hero in some ways embraces sort of thematically embraces the other side and dwells in that space morally and otherwise in the middle and owns it. Does that make sense? And also it's, it's more fun. I mean, it's like, you know, when you were younger, it was more fun to play Han Solo than it was Luke Skywalker. I mean, you know, it's more fun to read about even like in paradise lost. It's you, you kind of are rooting for Satan over some of the goody two shoe angels, you know, and, and stuff. And I, I don't know, in a lot of ways, the anti-hero says what we're thinking, but we're too cowardly to say, and it's fun to relate to that. But isn't it truer too? Isn't the isn't the reality of things less strictly defined? Isn't that what we've come to understand? Haven't we evolved to that point? Isn't the anti-hero in some ways the evolution of reality? I don't know. That's that's what my point was. Uh, oh, I see. That reality is more the gray area. The anti-hero is the gray area, and we are all living in the gray area. I don't know that I'd call that meaningless, though. Just because it defies categorization or goes between doesn't mean that it doesn't have a place. I think, like, maybe you were looking for, like, definitionlessness <laughs> rather than meaningless. You know what I mean? Like, that it doesn't have meaning. It's just that it doesn't, it can't be defined. Yeah. No, I, I, I think yeah. I understand what you're saying. So, you know, postmodernism was... The meaning is that there's no meaning. But what's the next? What's the next step? Is the meaning is well? That's not even a meaning. The, there's no meaning even there. Are we still in postmodern, or are we post postmodern? Yeah, I think we're in post postmodernism. I think we're getting there, and I think that's what this is. Yeah. If, if if that makes sense, I've thought a lot about this, and I think that postmodernism had fun dismantling things, and then was totally oblivious to what to do once you've picked, once you've deconstructed things, you deconstruct these political systems, you deconstruct these books. That was fun. Now what? And I think we've <laughs> sort of reached a point where we're like, now what? Now we own that. Now yeah. we own that space between things. Now we own the interstices. That's where we live. A beautiful mess. <laughs> yeah. And I think if there is a post postmodernness, we're starting to see that emerge out of not a rejection so much of the idea that there is the, the meaning is there is no meaning, but an, but an owning of that uh, 
what's left. Yeah. And, and maybe, maybe that's nothingness. Maybe that's the space in between. Maybe that's amorality. Maybe that's both. Maybe that's Rick Grimes, who is the hero who will make a sandwich out of someone's neck and eat it. I don't know. Um, yeah, he did that at one. We're, uh, yeah. we're in the rebuilding. We're in the pastoral. Of- <laughs> yeah. We're in the pastoral stage. <laughs> I don't know. I think, yeah, I understand what you're saying. It's like we're owning all that. And it's like what's coming out of this. It's like a birth from all that. Yeah. And when you were saying that, just remind like what drives me crazy at work is when people will be negative just to be negative. And yeah. you're like, okay, you're negative. All right, we get it. Now, now what do we do? Can we solve the problem now? Or are we going to sit here and be negative all day long? You know, yeah. and yeah. so I can kind of, yeah. you know, once you, I, I do see, a, it seems like in literature, Stuff I've been reading lately and shows and movies, there does seem to be some sort of longing for meaning or some sort of creation or yeah. something. Something grander, I think. Right. Something like like we're all, we do have all of that, uh, Dean, what you call meaninglessness. We own it. Now we want something more, something yeah. maybe older or something newer or bigger than something, something to hope in. Uh, and the last thing I do want to talk about is the thing that Molly and I were back and forth before the show, we were uh, messaging back and forth about my Daddy weird. <laughs> yes. My weird theory about why the anti-hero hero has a special place in America. Mm-hmm. And so my thought was that we can draw a kind of line from uh, Hawkeye, Natty Bumpo um, in the James Fenimore Cooper novels to dirty Harry, who's also uniquely American to our characters of today, the Walter Whites of the world. And here's why. Because the quintessential American, what's American about Natty Bumpo, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Molly, but part of what is unique about Natty Bumpo is that he dwells outside of the sort of um, sanctioned heroic space. He's not book smart. Just like most Americans, and we praise the street smart-ishness of Americans, he rejects institutions and does it for himself. He's a self-made person, and he completely embraces his messy, multicultural nature. He is not Native American, but he has embraced the Native American. He talks about mixed bloodness and things like that. And so I think uh, the qualities of the anti-hero uh, line up really well with what we've understood to be the qualities of the the Americanness of our people. I think what is strongest about that, what people respond to, or what I, I think you're hinting at, is the liminality of it—that he is mm. simultaneously part of both worlds and part mm. of neither. And it yep. is that antiheroes live in that liminality and that a large part of what makes up America or what has defined American culture is that being between, that we are neither this nor that, or we are both and neither simultaneously. And I yeah. think that is a really, really strong thing that people are responding to overall through like the history of antiheroes. And I think part of that, part of the irony there is that that's a fiction that there is an American story, that there is a sanctioned version of it. But you know what? We prefer to think of ourselves as the melting pot. We prefer to think of ourselves as the non-academic do-it-yourselfer, the bootstrapper, right? The American dream. 
Yeah. Manifest destiny, right? All of that stuff. Man, I hate the frontier. <laughs> I hate mm-hmm. it so much. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, I mean, that just tied into what we were talking about before. I mean, the movie... I saw that y'all haven't seen it. It's Nomad Land that just came out, and they're just talking about the frontier, and it really is deconstructing that cowboy. Oh, I'm living, you know, playing my harmonica, conquering the wilderness, and you know, it's just survival in, in a lot of ways, and it's not this uh, heroic trope at all. And I think that you know, you, you're talking about Dirty Harry, and I was thinking of. Uh, like Rambo and all those movies in the 80s where it was just this reaction to, you know, screw the government, screw all this stuff. I'm going to do it the way it needs to be done. And I'm going to take the law into my own hands and I'm going to do it my way and I'm going to solve this problem, you know. Which could be incredibly dangerous. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When one person decides like, oh, I've decided that this is the way it needs to be done. Like, is it though? That's the key distinction between the hero and the anti-hero. Yeah. I mean, you can end up taking taking justice into your own hands can get you, you know, to breaking down the doors of the Capitol on January 6th. Exactly. Don't do that. Totally. Do that, guys. You're not right. anti-heroes. You just <laughs> they're not anti-heroes. They really think they're anti-heroes. Yeah. That's the thing. If you watch the videos, they say... We need more patriots up to the front. I know. It's so distressing. This movie, it was a knockoff of Rambo and Dirty Harry. It was called Cobra that came out. Do you remember Cobra that came out? It started Sylvester Stallone. (laughs) You sound very angry about it. And he just went around around and killed people as a cop. I mean, just killed people. And I think people were cheering. You know, oh, he killed somebody. What? (laughs) All I can think of is Cobra Commander going around screaming, Cobra! <laughs> I thought of Cobra Kai. <laughs> it's all in the presentation. Is is this individual portrayed as a hero or are they portrayed as a menace to society? <sighs> you toe the line. It's a slippery slope. Well, now Cobra Kai, talk about Cobra Kai, I mean, now the whole Cobra Kai, they're the heroes. You know, they're the bad guys in the 80s, and now they're the heroes. And it's hilarious, and it's funny, and people love it. We're shouting, sweep the leg, Johnny, right? <laughs> we want to see Johnny LaRusso get his ass kicked. I know. <laughs> I wonder what they'll do with Loki in his own series, talking about post-postmodern. Something terrible, I'm sure. Well, I just, is he going to be a hero, an anti-hero? He was... I don't know. I don't know what they'll do. Isn't with he already? Like, is he? I don't know. <laughs> when I was thinking about, I didn't say this, but when I was kind of texting back and forth with Molly and we were talking about Natty Bumpo, who is Hawkeye and who's Hawkeye, the leather stocking, the pathfinder, the deer slayer. He's got so many titles. Yeah, but <laughs> no idea what he's talking about. By the there's way. a <laughs> not a clue. Last of the Mohicans. Last of the Mohicans. <laughs> oh, okay. The Daniel Day Lewis movie. That's Daniel Day Lewis's. Hawkeye. It's that guy danced around the fire, right? Yeah. That's it. That's all I know about it. But he's he's the he's in many ways inspires Hawkeye the the, the superhero. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's a he's a really? Yeah. Yeah, that's what yeah. he's based on. Oh, I didn't yeah, that's I what did he's based not know on. that. And and in Infinity was it Infinity was one of those two. Um Endgame or Infinity War. Hawkeye becomes Endgame. This yeah. yeah. Endgame. He becomes the anti hero yeah. who Yes, he does. You know, Scarlett Johansson has to go get his get him back to the right side of things. That was sad, though. Yeah, yeah. it was. Hot take: uh, Last of Mohicans 
sucks. It's horrible. <laughs> the book it. or the movie? <gasps> the movie. It's horrible. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just that's my hot take. I watched it and then realized that they completely. Did, I mean, whatever was good in the book, they drained that out of it and <laughs> turned it into this weird. Films often do this. That's unfortunate. You know who directed that was Michael Mann. And I was just shocked that he directed. I mean, he did so many good movies like Heat. And that to me was just such a stinker. I mean, I just couldn't stand that movie. Yeah, Daniel Day-Lewis is a great actor. Yeah. He yeah. totally overacted in that movie too. He did. Uh, he did. Let's end with the very anti-heroic review of, of <laughs> Last of the Mohicans. Yeah. The pub is produced on that series of tubes we all know as the internet from the studios at Underdark, which doubles as my basement and office. You can listen in on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher, where we post new episodes every Monday. You can also find us at straylightmag.com, where we publish new poetry, stories, art, and of course, podcasts. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at the pub podcast on Twitter. Until next time, thanks for listening to The Pub, Straylight Magazine's podcast about all things narrative, story, and publishing. <laughs>